Hello, I'm Jade Calloway and this is Granby, the storm in the desert, the bonus bits. We are working on a better name, more on that shortly. In the meantime though, pull up a sandbag because we've got a few more remarkable stories to share with you. Coming up, some of our recordings that didn't quite fit into the series, but are not to be missed, including a Gurkha battling the elements, some birthday cheer gone wrong, and DJs asking for weapons. First though, it is high time you meet the team behind this series, who are all here with me. Hello. Hi Jade, I'm Jess Bracey and I am Jade's fellow producer and I'm currently out in Bahrain in the Middle East. I'm Joe Carden, I am the sound editor and audio designer and I'm currently based in Colchester. And I'm Josella Waldron and um, I'm the editor and this whole thing was my mad idea. <laughs> Sorry. Thanks for that, by the way. <laughs> Now, a few people have mentioned that our army nurse Karen's buzz cut back in episode two was a bit of a highlight of the series, but it wasn't the only hilarious and unfortunate incident that she shared with us. Karen also told me about being stationed with a Gurkha unit who were guarding the field hospital and how great that meant the food was, for starters. And I imagine anyone who's ever been treated to a Gurkha curry or a Momo before will be nodding vigorously right now. But on one winter's day on the front line, their force protection Gurkha team provided the medics with a really good giggle. And it's these lighter moments that have stuck with Karen. I tend to remember a lot of the funny things that happened. I mean, I'm sure everybody's seen the sketch from the Vicar of Dibley where she's walking along with her boyfriend in the field and they're jumping through puddles and she jumps into that puddle and disappears. Well, I can remember sitting with some friends practicing for Reg Nose Day to do, I think it was either a six or a 10k run to try and raise money for charity. And there was lots of training going on. And I remember sitting with some friends and we were just kind of overlooking, watching the camp and just really taking it all in and trying to come to terms with you know what we were experiencing and then out of the blue there's a group of Gurkhas that are out training and running around the camp and literally this guy ran through a puddle and disappeared just like the woman from the Vicar of Digley and it's memories like that that kind of stand out and you think you know what it was a crazy time but there was a lot of fun that happened at the same time. I love that image so much I think it's so funny. It was such a strong visual. Vicar of Dibley, like we have all seen that scene, haven't we? Indeed, yep. Always a good Christmas special. They all sound like they're talking about it was yesterday and it's 30 years ago. I was at school 30 years ago watching this on TV, which is part of my fascination of the whole thing. You guys, you want to explain where you were? Because this makes me laugh. So in 1991, I was six months old when Granby happened. Um, so I was born June 1990, same month as Jade. And I, I posted on Twitter whilst everyone was out to war. I was at home at my grandma's house just chewing on a lamb bone. And from that picture, someone got in touch. One of our incredible contributors, Mick McCarthy, got in touch and said, I remember because my daughter was your age as well in 1991. Yeah. And Joe, you weren't even born, were you? Yeah, I didn't even have photographic evidence of how I was around. This was, what, six years before I was even here. But I think that's what makes it even more special for me doing this project. I mean, hearing these stories genuinely for the first time seeing things like you know peter's and nickel with all the clips and the iraqi tv footage and all these things that were just history from before i was born was so so incredible to experience 
And like you say, mad to think that a lot of these people were going through these things when they're the sorts of ages we are now. One of the famous quotes from John Major is that older men and women send younger men and women to war. And like we mentioned, so many people that we spoke to actually marked a birthday out there. Two of those were Mal Craghill and Martin Wintermeyer. They were tornado navigators that were deployed to the Gulf and turned 28 at the end of Op Granby. I was quite annoyed all day because no one had said or done thing. I thought they'd forgotten about it. Then in the evening, they got me a birthday cake and we went out for a meal in one of the local uh, Saudi restaurants and drank my health on coke i think it was coke but no it's uh again i've got cards and presents um from from abroad i got a nice birthday cake which is a rice crispy birthday cake which had a bottle a miniature bottle of baileys buried inside it <laughs> that was the only booze i got it was very very surreal because we, we the war had finished we were sitting around doing not a lot we we're just waiting to go home basically because there was no more no more work to do but a very a very sober evening because there's no booze to be drunk no. <laughs> uh, alcohol did occasionally make it through in various imaginative forms but but the result was often tragic so i do remember one time at tabuk going into the british forces post office and there was a strong smell of rum and somebody had been sent a bottle of rum, but it had smashed in its packaging and been packaged properly. But for me, the most tragic incident was actually a guy in my foreship, John Croshaw, got sent some whiskey at Christmas. And uh, I think it was his brother who'd sent it, or somebody in his family anyway. And what they'd done was was washed out a shampoo bottle, filled it with whiskey and, and set it across. But I say washed out as opposed to sterilised. So this arrived, this, this lovely single malt whiskey, tasting of shampoo. John said, well, let's, let's have a drink of this whiskey. Here we go. And pulled it all out. And then we're like, it's a bit dodgy, actually. But it was the only alcohol we had. So we drank it. One of those memories that will stick with me forever. Yeah. We did have a similar experience, actually. Um, I, don't know if I, I don't know if I'm going to get us in trouble for this, but it, here we go. Uh, Camp Bastion, picture the scene, Herrick 19. And um, we had a similar delivery, actually, to the post office and a well-meaning family member of one of our colleagues had sent a birthday treat and it was miniatures of port and um and it had been rumbled at the post office and they were like do you know what we have to do now you have to come outside with us and we have to pour it into the sand and we all kind of felt a bit sad just watching this port drain into the sand <laughs> it was quite amusing really but i think it's happened in many operations since and before but I think that's an interesting point, remembering that it's not just the forces on the ground who are there at the time. There's a lot of support teams around it, much like ourselves, who would go out there and broadcast at the time. And, you know, as a relatively new forces broadcaster, I've been here, what, a year and a bit. It's been incredible hearing about some of the responsibilities that our former colleagues would have had at the time. For Jonathan Bennett, he was station manager of BFBS Middle East at the time. Not only did this guy have to deal with, you know, keeping up morale during really difficult times, making these life-saving take-cover announcements, but as he recalled here, his role almost got a lot more physical too. Dave and Glenn and myself used to be in the RAF, which, as the army will tell you, means we had no military experience whatsoever. But Glenn and Dave came to see me one day and said, you know, now the fighting started, we should really be armed. We're ex-service, we're trained in weapons handling, we should have guns. I thought, oh, I'm not sure about this, but I thought, well, I'd be happier if I had one. So I put it to the uh, Army headquarters guys and they went, oh, I don't know about this. And then it got quite a way up the, uh, the command chain before it came back down saying, no, 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 you're not having them. And for a start, we were war correspondents and that would have uh, gone against the Geneva Convention. So it never happened, which was probably a good thing. But they did agree that we did have to have armed guards to go up into the desert once the fighting had started. And also because we had a ptarmigan secure battlefield telephone system, which had to be manned all the time. It was proving to be very cumbersome to find somebody to manage 24 hours a day. 
So commandant of camp four, where we were, said, I'll send you three soldiers. They can man the ptarmigan and be your armed guards when you need to go out. So I thought, okay, that's fine. And it was even better because when they turned up, all three of them were girls. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> I love how casually he tells that story. Like, did not phase him at all, did it? There's so much in there. Like, like you say, casual mention of the Geneva Convention. Oh, it would have it would have breached the Geneva Convention. Otherwise, you know, yeah, I think it's probably best that none of us DJs ever get issued with a weapon. If anybody ever thinks that's a good idea in the future, let's not. I stopped in a traffic jam about 500 metres short of the double berm which marks the border. Uh, there's a bit of traffic crossing to our front and there's quite a lot of uh, American vehicles that we can see the other side of the border. So that is Lieutenant Colonel Tim Purbrick. Now, he did an interview with our news team, which we have used in this podcast. But when he was talking to the people arranging the interview, he said, oh, by the way, I've got some cassette recordings that I did in the back of the tank during the war. Luckily, Sarah in our technology department still had a Marantz cassette recorder, so she popped it in there. And my goodness, when I played them for the first time, I was just blown away. I'm just amazed I'm amazed he did it and I'm amazed they still exist and I'm amazed we got hold of them. And for Tim Perbrick to actually have trust to post it to us, I would have held onto those tapes like they were my children, but um, <laughs> luckily we were able to digitise them, which is amazing. So I spoke to Rob Olver, who this year has been with us for 35 years, which is just incredible, and was sent out to the Gulf in October 1990 to report on the war alongside cameraman Mark Hunt. And it was great because Mark had his Op Granby t-shirt on, which I very much appreciated if it was only for TV, but no, it was just for radio. Um, And just some of their stories about the fear of flying out, saying, you know, we don't have to go. It's not our job to be on the front line, but we still went. And in doing so, they did run into a spot of bother when in the Gulf. One of the things, of course, in Saudi Arabia was that they had well-established secret police. And we were filming actually along a, a main supply route, which coincidentally passed some oil wells. And so we were stopped. Literally out of nowhere, the Saudi police turned up, one in front of us, two behind us with lights flashing and what have you. They stopped us, wanted to know what was going on, wanted to check our paperwork. The Saudis were arguing amongst themselves, so we got the police, we got the army, and then the religious police turned up, and they wanted to take us away. And it was the Americans that stood in between us, raised their guns and said, you're not taking them anywhere. And there was that sort of little standoff. And while this was all happening, I changed the tape and the camera. So if they took the tape, they'd get a blank tape, which is basically what happened in the end. They said, right, we'll take your tape away, and if there's anything on there that we don't like, we're coming for you. And of course, they got just got blank tape. And so we got the footage and we were able to actually, we did put it in the programme, didn't we, Rob? We Gone did. Through all yeah. That. yeah. Excellent and, uh, shot. Yeah, it was a good shot. Yeah, it would have been a shame to lose it, but it was a lot of aggro to get it. I can just imagine it like being such a Scooby-Doo moment, these two BFBS reporters being held at gunpoint in Saudi Arabia. Bearing in mind, this was a time when BFBS were potentially wearing uniform as well at the time. And to have that Scooby-Doo moment where it's like, oh no, those pesky kids got away with it again by swapping the tapes. It's just an incredible moment. 
In episode six, we talked a little bit about how injuries weren't always inflicted by the enemy. And C-130 Hercules ground engineer Jeff Brown had some amazing stories when I spoke to him about flying all over the Gulf in Albert. Incredibly, it wasn't any of the unprepared landing strips that they touched down at which caused them a problem, but rather a crowded airfield where they ran into trouble. January the 25th, 1991, we were positioned after two freight sectors to Jubail as Gambit 4-3, that was our call sign, and we were tasked to pick up ammunition. We'd loaded up and I was on the outside on the long lead to conduct the engine start and a Saudi Arabian Super Puma helicopter taxied quite close to us from the left hand side and the next thing I knew I was hit on the right hand shell of my headset by something very large and heavy. A lump of the rotor hit my headset and knocked me to the ground. The aircraft start never occurred because the crew were out of their seats and asking if I was okay and then looking up the other end of the airfield where XV-192 and RF Hercules had lost its wingtip. The Super Puma had taxied far too close to it and chopped off about a metre and a half of its wingtip and there was four tonnes of aviation fuel gushing out. So with all the ammunition around and hot aircraft, nothing moved for hours until the fuel was contained and the fire hazard resolved. So let me get that right. What banged his head? So it was the tip of a different Hercules wing, like, you know, a big lump of metal. But the thing I found incredible, I was like, hang on, when you say headset, do you mean like a full-on flying helmet? He said, well, no, they were just ear defenders. So no bigger than some sort of chunky over-ear headphones. So a matter of inches difference and it would have hit flesh. It doesn't even bear thinking about. Shall we get our final bonus bits? This one comes from Corporal David Garrigan, who was a tank commander with the Queen's Royal Irish Hussars. And at the 25th anniversary reunion of Op Granby, he had this amazing moment of serendipity, which was all connected to a visit from a war artist who'd visited them in the desert back in 1991. So there was a guy called Watt. He came round and was doing sketches of different vehicles and he come up and he asked me if he could draw my tank and I said yeah of course it, you know it was obviously absolutely no skin of my nose he didn't do it he just sat over on the side and just did this drawing never saw him again Didn't expect to um, a few years afterwards I went to London for something while I was still in the army and I went to the National Army Museum which is by Chelsea Barracks and there was a Gulf War display and my tank was in there this painting this picture and I thought wow that's incredible my I'm in the National Army Museum and I then wrote to them when I got home and asked if there was any chance I could get a copy of it. He sent me a copy, which was really nice. Actually, he sent me two copies, which is just lovely of him. We had a little chat and it was it was lovely. Anyway, when we went to the reunion, this five-year-ago reunion, I took one of the copies, the spare copy, with me. And one of my crew was there, my driver. And I said, Ian, would you like a copy of this? And he was blown away because he said what had happened was he found this guy's this guy what he'd found his sketchbook in the desert because he dropped it and he found it and he gave it back to him so it sort of put a shiver down my spine because he'd found it and if he hadn't found it i would never have had the 
picture because it would obviously have disappeared. It was quite extraordinary. Just imagine the luck of actually finding that and having it back in your possession. Incredible. I love that story. It's the perfect one to finish on. I think so. That is pretty much us. There's one more thing we need to do for the final time. And I think it's been one of our favourite moments in each episode while we've been producing it is the bit where (laughs) relatively late on, we'll get this frantic message in Block Capitals from Josella saying, we need a name. Sorry. (laughs) So we need a name, guys. What do you think we should call this? I'm just putting it out there now. Gurkha in a puzzle is the standout story of the episode for me. (laughs) Well, I think it should be the bits that didn't quite fit because I like things that rhyme. Um, That's my vote. I I like to bring in all the different stories. So uh, Gurkha in a Puddle, Boozy Shampoo and the Secret Saudi Police Adventure. (laughs) It's too long, though. (laughs) It's a long title, yeah. (laughs) Well, by the time you're listening to this, you will know what episode name we finally settled on. But that has been one of our favourite bits to do is choosing them and we really hope you've enjoyed the series we have a couple of thank yous to finish with joe maybe some soundscaping for this yeah i think that works a huge thank you to our contributors for being so open and honest for reaching out in the first place and being willing to share their stories we are so very grateful and a thank you to you for listening if you've made it this far and if you've enjoyed the series please do leave us a review or a rating over on Apple Podcasts and if you'd like to reach the team you can email us it's podcasts at bfbs.com 